This the remix. It's the Press Box with Grady and Bischoff on ESPN Las Vegas. Ed Graney is out at OTAs for the Raiders. The second day the media has been able to watch something. Uh, I am curious to see if we see Derek Carr talk today. Ed told us last week that they thought Derek Carr was talking last Thursday, but that that may have changed after the Colin Kaepernick workout. So I would assume Derek Carr ends up talking today because he is the quarterback and outside of like the head coach. Uh, the most in-demand person to talk to the media. So assuming Derek Carr talks to the media today after their uh, day of practice. Now, here's a question I have for you. Is there any way that we can make Alex Leatherwood the most important player on the Raiders roster for this season? We can. I don't think he is, but we can. So make your case. So, I I mean, obviously it's quarterback. It's I mean, basically every team is quarterback. It's just like that's how this sport works. And if Derek Carr has a big step forward because he has Devontae Adams, that'll probably be the defining part of the season. If Carr is uh, the same as he's been before, then the Raiders, maybe they're a playoff team, but that's kind of their ceiling. If he takes a big step forward, that's probably going to be the defining point. But like we said at 7 o'clock, the offensive line has a really good chance to define this season. If it is horrible, this could be a six-win team, right? It could derail anything they did. The, th- the three great pass catchers of Adams, Waller, and Renfro might not be a big deal. But if they're average or at least closer to average as an offensive line, then the offense is probably pretty good. Offense is probably good enough to carry this team to 10 wins. Uh, offense is probably good enough to put this team back in the playoffs or at least in that realm there's a lot of afc teams that think they're going to the playoffs but if they're bottom five like that's enough to derail it and to me the the curiosity of alex leatherwood here is a for this season but also b looking into the future a little bit he was bad last year i mean you're talking pro football focus had him as the worst tackle four weeks into the season they move him to guard and he still ended up like 80th of 82 graded guards on the nfl season was not good but if we you know use our imaginations offensive line is a position where guys are bad in year one and then can make those big leaps we saw it with colt miller though he wasn't as bad as alex leatherwood the problem with that is bad offensive so bad in their first year they just don't ever get any better but if we use our imagination a little bit and let's guess that alex leatherwood does make a year two jump maybe a new coaching staff new offensive line coach maybe there is a jump there And if Alex Leatherwood were an average right tackle in the NFL, I think that would be incredible for this team because you would have your left tackle, Colton Miller, who's good, your right tackle and Alex Leatherwood in this imaginary imagination scenario here is average. And then your interior, right? Andre James wasn't great, but he wasn't an awful center last year. Denzel Good, who didn't play most of last season, He's a fine, should be at least, a fine interior de- offensive lineman. Dylan Parham, they drafted in the third round, potentially has some uh, could steal a starting spot or whatever. They're like, there's enough names, enough guys there that the interior of the line wouldn't be terrible if your tackles are good to go. And that's enough to be top 20 offensive line, 18th, 19th, something like that. And while that's still not a good offensive line, 
that should be good enough for the rest of this offense to work. And if you told me right now, Alex Leatherwood is an average right tackle for this next season in the NFL, I think I'd be extreme. I'd be much more optimistic about this team making the playoffs, about this team being a legitimate contender in the AFC West. If you told me Alex Leatherwood was simply an average right tackle. So I'm going to point you and everyone listening to an article from Ted Wynn, who's been on this show before at The Athletic. He talked to Mike Tice, a former Raiders offensive line coach, very well known for his offensive line coaching, as well as his sale of Super Bowl tickets. That's a different story. But um, go check out this article because they broke down the film together on the Raiders offensive line. They went one by one. And Mike Tice thinks there's a chance for Alex Leatherwood at guard he does not think that kicking back out to tackle is the best option he thinks that the skills are there for alex leatherwood to potentially be a decent right guard not a great right guard but a decent right guard and you talked about some of the pro football focus grades last year uh the raiders had actually pretty incredible consistency among their offensive line last year I mean, they had four players play together almost the entire season which isn't necessarily a good thing yeah. but Colton Miller allowed 34 pressures. Andre James allowed 17 pressures in 1,139 snaps. Uh, after that, John Simpson allowed 29 pressures. I said 37 pressures in 1,112 snaps. And Alex Leatherwood in 1,100 snaps allowed 65 pressures. And you know what? That's not the worst one. The worst one is actually Brandon Parker. Because if you go ahead and take the ratio, Brandon Parker had 881 snaps so 220 fewer than alex leatherwood and still allowed 53 pressures <laughs> so i would point everybody also because i'm going to make you read math to some research that eric eager did at pro football focus where he said yes offensive line is a weak link system meaning that your worst offensive lineman can often dictate your problems but their research actually said it's not your very worst offensive lineman that has the most direct correlation to your success. It's your third best offensive lineman, which is weird, but they have numbers to back it up. So I think the reason I say Alex Leatherwood isn't the most important player is because I actually think it comes down to James, Illuminor, Simpson, Parker, Parham. I think it comes down to the other guys. I think if you can cover up for the most part Alex Leatherwood with good play elsewhere, then having one bad offensive lineman isn't going to be the end of you, right? It's not necessarily Storm Norton getting run over in game 18 last year with the Chargers. Uh, I think that the Raiders are going to be much more dictated by how the other misfit pieces of this offensive line can be fit together. That Eric Eager story. So basically it's implying that you can hide one, maybe two bad offensive linemen. It just says that the correlation to how bad your line is is a lot stronger with those middle offensive linemen than it is with your absolute worst. So basically, okay, so so your middle, okay, I got it. Okay, that's interesting. So that would basically mean if Alex Leatherwood is bad again, you could conceivably hide him if Denzel Good, Andre James, Dylan Parton, whatever group there is competent next year that you could get away with that. Okay, I mean, that's that's interesting to me. I would say that if Alex Leatherwood is average, then... You can hide Dylan Parham or Andre James or John right. Simpson or in this scenario, if and the Raiders have tried Alex Leatherwood at right tackle and guard in OTAs or at least the limited portion the media saw. I'm curious what they say today as to what they see. 
in the scenario though that Mike Tice laid out where he's got a chance to be decent as a guard that would leave the Raiders needing a right tackle and would it be Brandon Parker right now I don't know that Josh McDaniels knows the answer to that right I mean, <laughs> look at what they've said they they've basically said they're trying out everything and I, I think they have to, considering Colton Miller is the only reliable offensive lineman they have. And you talk about the potential for Leatherwood's improvement. Let me point to something as a Giants fan that I watched closely over the last year. So Andrew Thomas was the number four overall pick in 2020. There were some thought that he might have been a little bit overdrafted, not as overdrafted as Leatherwood, but still overdrafted at the number four pick. And he turned in a 62 pro football focus grade in his first year with a 54 pass blocking grade. Now, a 54 pass blocking grade was twice as good as Alex Leatherwood was last year, but he was viewed as a bust. He was viewed in year one as a bust, and the Giants said they, they needed better from him in year two. So he improved. He actually was their best offensive lineman last year at left tackle, 79 offensive grade and an 82 pass block grade. And that was viewed as monumental improvement so what can you look at as monumental improvement from Alex Leatherwood this year is it a 17 point jump in PFF grade is it a 28 point jump in pass block grade I think those are too much to ask and even if they are too much to ask they don't get Alex Leatherwood to average they get him to below average from back yeah that that's that's the problem is is ex how big of a jump can you real realistically expect and like I set up that whole scenario where is he average? If he's real, if he improves a lot on last year, he doesn't even get to average. Like it would be a unbelievable jump. The other point there, and you mentioned with the pass blocking grade, that's probably the biggest concern with Alex Otherwood is as we're moving to, or as we have a more pass heavy league and it's more important to be good at pass blocking and rushing the passer than necessarily run blocking and stuffing the run. Alex Leatherwood's one strength or the best of his weaknesses, he's a better run blocker than he was pass blocker last year. And that's not really the way you would want your offensive lineman to be structured. You'd much prefer the opposite where, eh, that guy's not as good when we try to run the ball, but he's pretty solid when we pass it. He's sort of the inverse of what, you'd, what you would prefer as your offensive line. It's true, but then again, that goes back to the John Gruden 1989 team building philosophy, right? We're going to get a bunch of road graders and box safeties and hope that everyone tries to run the way that they used to run. Well, nobody did. And again, I know Raiders fans are probably out there saying, you're hating on a team that made the playoffs last year. Well, no, we're hating on a team that won better than 75% of its one-score games last year and could regress if this offensive line doesn't come around so it really is a matter of they have improved exponentially skill position wise because Devonte adams makes everyone else on the offense better right he makes hunter renfro better he makes darren waller better but if there's no time to throw him the ball none of it matters None of it matters in the slightest. And that's what we're getting after here, right? This isn't hating on the Raiders. This is hating on them, ignoring one of their most glaring weaknesses this entire offseason. Yeah, it's we're going to look back on this offseason once we get into at the end of maybe the very end of the season. And it'll be curious to look back and say, you know, did McDaniels and Ziegler completely tank their own chances after going all in this year because they didn't address the offensive line or did or did they basically walk in and say no we got enough here we can make it work 
even though it's not going to be good. Like, that's going to be curious to look back on because it is, if we went back to end of the Super Bowl Raiders offseason, the number one thing that I think anybody would have agreed on that the Raiders needed to do was to bring in some better talent on the offensive line, was to improve that offensive line play. And they did not do that. And it's fascinating to be sitting here with, okay, they added a third round pick and that's the extent of their offseason with the offensive line. It's fascinating to be here on June 2nd and they might have their five starters on the offensive line. They were all on the roster last year. And yeah, Denzel Good was hurt, but Denzel Good's not making that big of a difference coming in. So it's it's going to be fascinating to look back and see because it might have been the most obvious fix, and that might be what cost the Raiders a playoff spot this year. Or they're smart enough to figure it out and say, we don't really need a great offensive line. We can figure out how to get these guys to average, and that'll work just fine. Well, what they ultimately chose to do. So let's recap the Raiders offseason if you want to talk about where the money went, right? They decided to pay Derek Carr more than they have. They didn't give him the big long-term contract, and Derek Carr was very clear about the fact that he was flexible in order to try to help them build the roster. They make a massive, massive investment in Devontae Adams. And then I think this is the somewhat questionable one. Chandler Jones is still a very, very good pass rusher. Chandler Jones, if from what you got from Yannick Ngakwe last year, is sort of Yannick Ngakwe plus because he can't stop the run very well either based on what we've seen as his career has gone on and is still a high-end pass rusher. So that, to me, if you're going to look at any of the three big investments they made this offseason, is the one where you say, did you need to do that versus trying to fix this offensive line and then was it worth trading your first and second round picks so that your first chance to draft a lineman was in the third round for Devonte adams i can hear a case both ways i'm not saying that they were wrong to do it but it could be undone so quickly if this line is no good that it's going to be a debate yeah i it it'll be interesting to see and I, i'm sure we're ultimately going to have a not a clear-cut answer because they're probably going to win like eight or nine games and there will be a lot of games where the offensive line is fine or they get around it and then there will be games where the offensive line is the reason, specific reason they lost because Derek Carr got hit 13 times and Derek Carr fumbles a lot and he fumbled t- three times or something. I, it'll be curious to look back and see just because of how obvious it was to most people that's what they needed to fix and it's the thing they did not address at all during the offseason. Coming up next, it's Bischoff's Briefs. We take a look at Donovan Williams' decision to go pro. Bischoff's Briefs. So I, uh, I figured it out. Bischoff's Briefs. My hot dogs come in packages of 10 and hot dog buns come in packages of 8. Bischoff's Briefs. See, the thing is that Life doesn't always work out according to plan. Bischoff's briefs. So, be happy with what you got. You can always get a hot dog. Today's Bischoff's briefs is taking a look at Donovan Williams, who yesterday made the decision to stay in the NBA draft. He is not coming back to UNLV. Uh, Mike Gramala had been on this show a couple of times saying that he thought Donovan Williams was going to stay in the NBA draft basically because he thought Donovan Williams really wanted to go pro and didn't have a high bar for feedback. He didn't need to be told, hey, 
you're going to be drafted in the second round. So I am curious as to what feedback Donovan Williams got. He worked out for a handful of NBA teams. Did any of them say, yeah, we might draft you in the second round? Um, he did not get invited to the combine. 75 players got invited to the combine. Only 60 get drafted. Uh, so you can do the math there. Um, so I'm curious to see what feedback he got and how low his bar was for pro versus staying at UNLV. There are lots of guys who just are ready to go pro, even if it doesn't mean playing in the NBA, going somewhere to make a significant amount of money playing basketball. Donovan Williams, I think there is potential there that Donovan Williams is a useful role player in the NBA, right? Everybody wants the wing that can shoot and defend. Williams has the length, the size, the athleticism, and he shot 44% from three last year that there's some potential there that you could see, hey, this guy shoots 38% from three at the NBA level and his length and athleticism make him a good defender. There's certainly a path for Donovan Williams to be an NBA player. There's no doubt about that. Just coming off one year where you played well for UNLV doesn't seem to be the high point of turning pro. Now, UNLV's side of this, I think this is pretty brutal for Kevin Kruger and UNLV. If we look at this roster right now, and they still have a couple of open scholarships, we'll see what they do with them. That could be a significant change to the outlook here. But UNLV has built a team that is potentially great on defense. If everything were to go right, this team could be top 20 in the country defensively. If even just some things go right, they've still got a good shot to be top 50 defensively. Context on that, last year UNLV's Ken Palm ranking on defense was 97th. They haven't been top 50 since 2012-13, which is the last time they went to the NCAA tournament. So being top 50 would be very good. Being top 20 would be incredible. The problem, though, is even if things go well on the defensive end and they're great top 20, trying to figure out who's going to score for UNLV. Where do they get offense from? They only really have two players on the roster now that have some sort of offensive track record at the college level. Elijah Harkless scored 10 points per game for Oklahoma last season, but it wasn't very efficient. The In college basketball, sort of the average offensive rating is right around 100. Elijah Harkless was at 92 last season. Very inefficient throughout most of his career. He even played two seasons at uh, Cal State Northridge before going to Oklahoma. As a freshman, his offensive rating was 84, not very good. As a sophomore, it was 100, which is the best of his career. But 100 at Cal State Northridge, which is a lower conference than UNLV, doesn't translate to being very efficient at the Mountain West level. Maybe Kevin Kruger can coach him up. Maybe a different system, whatever. Maybe there's something to unlock there with Elijah Harkless. But this is not a Donovan Williams situation. Donovan Williams wasn't playing very much at Texas. He got playing time here and was really good or much better than expected last season. Elijah Harkless has been getting a lot of minutes throughout his career. We have a big enough sample size to kind of know what he is, and he's been inefficient on the offensive end. I'd be shocked to see him get a high usage and post an offensive rating over 100. One quick comparison, Bryce Hamilton last year, one of the highest usage players in the country, his offensive rating was 106, which isn't amazing, but for his, how high his usage was, was very good. I'd be shocked to see Harkless near 106. The other guy with some track record is Jackie Johnson, but it's still not much of one. He averaged nine points per game at Duquesne last year as a freshman. 
but in just 19 minutes. He was not getting a ton of minutes, but still was scoring because when he's in the game, he shoots. But his offense rating was only 99, right? He's a freshman. There's some chance for potential there, some improvement there. But I'd be shocked to see Jackie Johnson turn go from basically average bench scorer to high usage scorer with good efficiency. This is where Donovan Williams would have fit in, right? He would have been probably the best candidate to be the number one option on offense. And I would have expected him to regress, right? He shot 44% from three last year. Don't think that would have stayed the same. I think if you ask him to do more, his efficiency would have dropped off some. But his efficiency, his offensive rating was 103 last year, better than Elijah Harkless, better than Jackie Johnson in the last couple of seasons. Donovan Williams probably wouldn't have been a terrific number one option, but he probably would have been the best guy on this team, or at least would have been another option, another viable player to do that. But right now, as the roster stands, you look around and can Elijah Harkless suddenly become efficient taking more shots? Can Jackie Johnson come from Duquesne or is one of these guys who's never been a significant offensive player have a big breakout year? I just don't see where it comes from. And I think we're going to have a UNLV team that comes up short of the NCAA tournament again. And it's going to be because they don't have good enough offensive players on this team. Bryce Hamilton, when on the floor, accounted for 38.9% of UNLV's shots, top five in the nation. Donovan Williams was next at 28.7. That's how often these guys were shooting when they were on the floor. And the next highest that you can get to is Mike Nuga and Royce Ham, and they all share one thing in common. None of them are going to be playing for UNLV this year. Um, right now, Tyler, I'll grant you the obvious with Air Force and San Jose State and probably Nevada. Who else is UNLV better than right now? Yeah, it's it's tough because New Mexico's getting a lot of hype this offseason. They've had a good offseason. It's it's hard to find one, right? Like are can they be better than Wyoming next year? I don't think so. Uh so no. it's it's hard to find. I mean, Boise State's going to take a step back, but Boise State was pretty far ahead of UNLV to where taking a step back is still probably better than UNLV. It's it's a little difficult to find enough teams. Are they better than Fresno State with Orlando Johnson gone? Probably. I, I think I'd put that team below UNLV at the moment. It's going to be, can they effectively be San Diego State, right? A team that you just get, you're just so good defensively and you just figure out enough offensively that you win enough games. That's sort of the, right now with the roster, what the strategy would be. So I'm I'm curious to see if that works. It's worked for San Diego State, but this also would be a lesser version of San Diego State. So there's still a couple roster spots. I don't know how good of players are left that could make a significant difference on the problems that we've illustrated here, but I guess it's possible Kevin Kruger brings somebody in. But right now, this team projects to be good. Like, I mean, really good. One of the better Mountain West teams defensively, but offensively, it might be so much of a struggle that they're just not a true contender for the Mountain West and ultimately not a true contender for even a bubble spot in the NCAA tournament. All right, coming up next, J.R. Starkis joins the show. Ready for the weekend? It's like I picked the wrong week to quit drinking. Let's find out what's on tap with J.R. Starkis. Champagne, perfume going in, sewage coming out. 
Sound Executive at Southern Glazers Wine and Spirits, our extreme mixologist. Hello, JR. How are you today? Um, great, guys. Good morning. How are you? Yeah, very good. I've, I've got an important question. So we've had uh, Juan Soto trade rumors with the Washington Nationals. Their general manager came out yesterday and said that they are not trading him. They've told his agent. They've told him that they are not trading him. That um, As a Red Sox fan, how did you feel when the Red Sox traded away Mookie Betts? That was awful, man. As you're like, you know, is that you you take your best player and you you hand him off to the Dodgers? Like, I mean, yeah, it's brutal to watch as a as a fan of a team. You want to see your team do everything they can to keep their best player. Um, you know, it's it's it, it, it was awful, and I still have trouble looking at Mookie in a Dodgers uniform. My only saving grace is that you know, other than when Ed's on the line with us, I don't despise the Dodgers. Um, you know, I, I don't mind watching them. I don't mind watching them at all. Um, so I, at least it's a team that I, you know, semi enjoy watching play. Um, you know, not nobody as much as the Red Sox, of course, but um, at least he didn't. You know, if now if he would have gone to the Yankees, then I mean, my God, I don't know. It would have been a different story altogether, I'm sure. <laughs> um, it is fun watching the Dodgers get swept by the Pirates. I agree. Very fun to watch the last few days. <laughs> um, what uh, are, are the Red Sox going to not bring back Xander Bogarts now too? That, you know, it's funny because that's like obviously some of the, you know, what are they going to do when his contract's up and all this kind of stuff. And like, you can't, you can't keep doing this. Like, but the problem with it is, is that the Red Sox fans are so loyal um, that, that, you know, it's, They'll, the, the Red Sox ownership will punch them in the face, and they'll be like, that's okay, we'll figure it out, and they'll keep coming back. And so there will be no penalty to the ownership, no, no negative connotation uh, for the most part if they do that again uh, because the Red Sox faithful will just continue coming back where to a degree, you know, having, having a fan base that cares, um, cares so much but will also tell you to shove it when, when, they, when you do something that they don't like, and and you know not come to the game or whatever the case is uh that you know you, to a degree you kind of want the you want the ownership to be a little bit fearful of like what are the fans going to think i just don't know that the ownership of the red sox sometimes really cares because they know that ah, it doesn't matter we'll we'll still sell out all 30,000 seats at fenway park and people will come out in high numbers and um and it doesn't matter they're still going to buy our merch they still love us all right correct me if i'm wrong you do not play fantasy football right that is correct. I do not play fantasy football. The last time I did it, uh, Peyton Manning was my first-round draft pick, and it was the year he hurt his neck, and I never played again. <laughs> okay, <laughs> so was the Tommy Pham, Jock Peterson slap over fantasy football uh, the funniest story you've heard or, like, the most ridiculous thing you've heard? Can it be both? I mean, I feel like I it guess, was both. Yeah. Uh, you know, because, you know, it, it just goes to show you that, you know, it, that football is – so people are so tied into football um, that that this Tommy Pham and Jock Peterson thing, like that that you know Jock would have have to feel like he'd have to go up to him in the middle uh, in, in pregame and and say something because they're in the same league together. I don't know. That's like a, it's classic stupidity when it comes to um, when it comes to the competitiveness of of fantasy football. Um, so yeah, I, I, I love it. I think it's, I think it's goofy and funny. And I also like the fact that Mike Trout is the commissioner of that league and is, uh, like I'm staying out of this. <laughs> so, uh, okay. it's classic Mike Trout as well. How much, 
how much success and how much money would your son have to make as a major league baseball player for you to watch him slap Jock Peterson in the face over fantasy football and you not say anything to him? <laughs> um, well, I, I would hope that um, – I, I don't know. I mean, I would hope that I'm trying, I'm trying to raise a better young man than that, that, uh, <laughs> that he, wouldn't, he wouldn't just walk up to a random person and slap him. Um, you know, now if he wants to talk some smack, I'm all for that because that's just part of being a starkness is, you know, we have to, you have to, if you can deal it, you have to be able to take it. Um, so, you know, if, if you're, if you're starkest kid or starkest family member, even my wife who's married in, like, she knows the same thing. Like you dish it, but you better be able to take it back. But, uh, so I would, I would hope he would be able to dish it and get it back, but I would hope that he wouldn't like, unless it was jokingly put hands on anybody ever. Uh, does your son talk trash when he's playing baseball? Um, not a ton. He he does more of like a, uh, you know, a, he 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 does it more with his his actions on the field more than he does his words. Um, he's he's more of the guy that will, uh, you know, you know, hit a home run off of you and then just like lay the bat down and walk down the first base. He's not a bat flip guy. Um, but he's, he's one that will like, let you know that he got you. Um, uh, but he won't, he won't say anything. He's not a stare down guy. He's not a like, you know, muscle you up guy. He's more of a, um, uh, I've, oh, like I've been there before and, and you're just another victim of that. Come on. We need more trash talk out of him. JR. I want him yelling <laughs> at high school pitchers as he rounds the bases. Uh, yeah, I've only, I've only seen him point at his own dugout. But I've never seen him. I've never seen him do anything towards uh, another dugout. Point at the other team's dugout. It'll be more fun. It will be. I'm telling you. He might get yeah, slapped blow, in the face in the outfield before a game. Yeah, it'll be fun though. <laughs> All right. What are you making for us today, Jr.? So um, I wanted to kind of play off of uh, the, the warm weather again. Um, uh, I wanted to do something with blueberry and mint. Uh, you know, it's it's, it's a similar in style to what I did last week. Um, uh, I wanted to, you know, use gin this week. So I chose the botanist gin. I've used the botanist many a times on the show. Um, it's a, it's a, a gin from Isla in Scotland. It is, uh, London dry in its style and it's got forged herbs and spices from the Isles of, I- or from the, from Scotland, from Isla. Um, it is a beautiful gin that is great for cocktails. So, um, you know, obviously with the weather turning warm, people are always kind of looking towards something that might be a little bit more on the fruity side, um, refreshing, maybe a little effervescent. And so this drink will be perfect for the weekend. It's called the Blueberry and Mint Smash. And in order to make it, you're going to need some fresh mint. Um, I took about six leaves of fresh mint. It's the stuff you find at the store can be – I like buying the stuff that's the, um, you know, the, the living plant stuff. Um, so I buy the living plant mint and i took about 10 pieces of or excuse me 10 pieces 10 uh, blueberries what mix you put that into your mixing tin with about an ounce and a half of lemon sour so three quarter ounces of fresh lemon and three quarter ounces of simple syrup <laughs> muddle them together um all all in your tin now the reason you do that a little bit is because um if you muddle it with liquid it will help to kind of keep all of the flavors of the mint in the drink where sometimes if you muddle, dry muddle, which isn't the worst thing, but you can lose a little bit of that essence of the mint. So once you add the and muddle, once you add the sweet and sour and the mint and blueberries together, uh, you're going to add an ounce and a half of botanist gin and half of an ounce of Cointreau. 
take all of those ingredients, add ice, shake it, and then double strain it. Once you shake mint, like it happens with basil too, it kind of uh, tears up. And if you just regularly strain it, which you can, you're just going to end up with pieces of mint in your drink. Um, and you may not want that in your teeth later. So I double strain with the fine tea strainer over fresh ice. I like to use a big sphere of ice or a big cube of ice. Um, but if you don't have access to that or if you don't make them on your own with something in your freezer, uh, your regular freezer ice will work just fine. Uh, and then once you double strain it over that fresh ice, you're going to uh, top it with about two ounces of Beaver Tree Ginger Beer. Give it a little stir just to incorporate all the ingredients and then garnish it with a, with a piece of mint. Um, it's a really easy drink to make. That's, it's really vibrant in its color because when you muddle the blueberries together, it kind of, the drink comes out this beautiful, like almost uh, dark pur- purplish blue color. Um, so it, it's a beautiful drink to look at. And the nice mint sprig against the purple and the color pops very nicely. And it's just super refreshing for, for, uh, for the weekend and, and sitting by the pool. All right. If I were to get married in Scotland, can I order this over there? Yes. One, well, the drink or the yeah. gin? Uh, well, I guess you made the drink specially, huh? I'm gonna have to. I'm gonna have to call you and have them explain it, right? Yes, yeah. You'll have to call me long distance and uh, in the middle of the night or whatever the time difference is there, and and I will tell them how to make the drink with botanist gin. But they will certainly have botanist gin. Yes. All right, hold on. We've gotten fun details from you that most of the meetings you go to, there's like alcohol involved, and you could drink all of it if you wanted to. What's the farthest you've traveled for a work meeting? Um. For work, I've been to, well, see, I guess it would have been Sweden. What is in Sweden? What do they drink in Sweden? Uh, a lot of vodka, and I was there with Absolute. Um, so I was at, in Absolute, I was in Aarhus, Sweden, with Absolute Vodka at that particular time. And uh, so that was, I was there in the winter, which was interesting, um, but it was beautiful. So the furthest I've ever traveled would be Sweden for a vodka seminar and uh, meetings. Tough job you got, Jr. <laughs> it was tough eating eating breakfast in in the winter on the in the middle of like a farm in Ahu, Sweden, where they're cooking bacon and eggs. And when it's like slightly cold outside because of the, the, the like the fresh snowfall, is uh, is a tough place to be. All right, he's Jr. Starkus, <laughs> Southern Glazers Wine and Spirits key account executive, our extreme mixologist. Jr. As always, we appreciate it. You got it, guys. Talk to you next week. So there is J.R. Starkis. Coming up next, we wrap up the show. But first, we got tickets to give away. If you want to go see Jurassic Park before it hits theaters, we got a pair of tickets for you. The sneak premiere on Tuesday, June 7th at 7 p.m. for Jurassic World Dominion, the newest Jurassic Park movie. 702-364-1100 is the phone number. It's in theaters on June 10th, but we got a pair of tickets to the premiere on June 7th. 702 702- 364-1100 is the phone number. We'll take call the number 7 at 702-364-1100. We're back to the Press Box with Grady and Bischoff. Ed Grady out at Raiders practice today. We'll get updates from him tomorrow on what exactly he could see from five football fields away while he watched football players stretch for 10 minutes uh adam candy filling in so nicely today uh adam is our resident referee umpire official i have an ump question for you Uh, a couple days ago the oakland a's challenged the count uh the count was three one 
the A's dugout for some reason thought it should be a 2-2 count. And the way this played out is they, they started yelling from the dugout, trying to get the home plate umpire's attention to tell them they thought the count should be 2-2. And then the home plate umpire called all the umps together. They got together for like two seconds, and then they looked back and said, yeah, it's 3-1. and one. And then the A's challenged the count. And what was great about this is the replays that like we got to see on TV, and I assume what they looked at what it wasn't to see if the balls were in the strike zone obviously this was a replay of did the umpire signal a strike once or twice in the previous four pitches it's one of the most bizarre reviews i've ever seen and what did it find tyler you've left all of us hanging the count was correct it was a three and one count so let's get to the greater point here why in the hell would you waste a challenge <laughs> on the count unless that count was going to be a walk right you thought someone should yeah. have walked or should have struck out but to go from 3-1 to 2-2 two, two, that has to be the stupidest use of a challenge I've ever heard and oh it was in the first inning oh god why are you trying to make my blood pressure <laughs> you realize that this is like the longest I've been able to sit in one place for the last what 24 <laughs> plus hours and this is what you're going to do to me. You're, you're going you're to make my insides boil more than they've spent the last 24 hours boiling. It was the second batter of the game. Challenged the count to ch try to change it from 3-1 to 2-2. And they were completely wrong. Like, not even close to being correct. Mark Kotze, not really accounting himself very well as the manager of the Oakland A's, huh? Did they send a letter to the stadium authority complaining oh, about that? They should have. Should have yeah. sent one to complain about the count. It was like, I... I didn't know you could challenge the count. I guess that kind of makes sense if you think that the the umpire called a strike or whatever and, and didn't click it and he's now giving you the wrong count. But I didn't know you could challenge it. And it was like one of the most bizarre things that I've seen where they figure out what the problem was. And then even after consulting with the other umpires and they point, the best part was when the ump pointed at the scoreboard and it was like, yeah, it's 3-1. And the, the A's still were like, nope, we are the only ones in this ballpark that are right. We know what the count is. It's 2-2. We're challenging that. Don't you think this was more the A's looking at the scoreboard and saying, that thing hasn't worked since 2003. You know you can't <laughs> trust that. Just another thing Probably. they're trying to prove the stadium. Be I think Dave Cable challenged this himself. I think he challenged it himself. Oh, I think the A's did. president called down, challenged it himself to prove that the scoreboard is no good. Doesn't that make yeah, more sense did. than challenging a ball strike call in the first inning? He did. Uh, I think yeah. so. I think that's we solved what the it. problem was here. We, abs we absolutely – look how good we are. We absolutely solved this. Uh, <laughs> here are other things you cannot challenge, by the way. The Yankees had this one go against them earlier this year. If the ball that is hit – it lands in front of the umpire. You cannot challenge fair or foul. If it lands behind the umpire, you can challenge fair or foul. The Yankees had a line drive hit down the third baseline that was hooking toward the line. And the umpire, apparently because he's never seen a baseball before, was flying out of the way of this ball. By the way, let me speak to you as a volleyball official who often does uh, line judging for college volleyball uh, when you're a line judge you are told do not move even if that ball is coming right at you do not move because your call will be wrong you can't see your eyes are moving so you're probably going to miss the call so guess what happened the ball lands on the chalk 
but the umpire is jumping out of the way and can't see it and calls it foul. You can see the chalk fly up on the replay, and the Yankees want a challenge, and the home plate umpire informs them, no, because it landed in front of the umpire, you're not allowed to challenge it. But you can challenge whether it's 3-1 or 2-2. Another Rob Manfred <laughs> killer special. What is, what's the logic there that umpires are infallible enough that if it's in front of them, they'll see it? Yes, but apparently they're fallible enough that they didn't see the pitch that was right in front of them to call it a ball or a strike. It just doesn't make any sense. If you're going to do this and have a replay system, you should be able to challenge anything other than a ball strike call because we could be there all day long in the replay system. Um, how hard is it as a volleyball official to not move when a ball is coming near you to make the call of in and out in or out i've tried to master this whole idea of looking casual just like make the call and duck my shoulder out of the way a little bit you know like oh no big deal right but i've absolutely been pegged right <laughs> especially you know if i'm out at unlv doing a game and some of those young women pound the ball like it, you flinch right it's almost like when you go to a baseball game if you ever sit close to the netting and when the ball's hit and it's coming, the foul ball's hit, it's coming towards you, you still flinch, right? Yeah. Even though you know it's not going to hit you. Like, I know I can get out of the way, but I still have that kind of, like, flinch but try not to look totally uncool moment. Uh, here's a genuine question for you, uh, Mr. Official. If you had to go do a volleyball game right now, are you good to go on all the rules? Or is that a sport where you've got to, like, run run back to the rule book and read up real quick to make sure you got everything. Oh, no. I mean, I can I can absolutely handle it. Um, there, <laughs> volleyball is a strange sport when it comes to the rules because you don't have to make a ton of obscure calls, right? Like, most of it is in, out, was the ball touched, did the setter double contact the ball, etc. But then you, when you get to the really obscure stuff, you've got to know it because the really obscure stuff in volleyball rules can... You know, it swings a point that can swing a game. But any referee who tells you that they haven't gone home after a game where they've made a tough call and immediately gone diving for the rule book <laughs> is lying to you. Let me, I'll, tell, I'll tell you a good story. So I have a friend who is the son of two very prominent uh, women's college basketball officials who I work with on a regular basis when I'm in California. And we had a call happen in a game one day where we weren't sure if the error that we had made, that the table had actually made, was correctable, right? There's certain rules for times when we, co we can correct it. He called his mom and dad right after the game, asked them both the question. They both gave him different answers. <laughs> these, are two, these are both officials who have worked like the Sweet 16 and Elite 8. They both gave him different answers, and we're looking at each other in the locker room like, Okay, we have to be allowed to have a little bit of leeway on screwing this up because two of the best officials in the country just gave us different answers on what we should have done. Uh, having both your parents as officials sounds like a nightmare childhood. Like, you can't get away with anything. You, you imagine, like, trying to negotiate your way out yeah. of something? I think the only thing that would be worse <laughs> would be having two lawyers for parents. Did they write up a rule book for their children and make them go over it like every year of their life? On their birthday, you get a new rule book of when your curfew is and everything. Oh, <laughs> sounds fun. <laughs> sounds fun. Adam, thank you so much. I hope you're okay the rest of the day.